This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Historian Jeffrey Burton Russell once said, to the modern mind, heaven seems bland or boring, an eternal sermon or a perpetual hymn. Evil and the devil seem to get the best lines. Well, you might say until now. Professor Gary Scott Smith of Grove City College has written a new book entitled Heaven in the American Imagination. Professor Smith chairs the history department at Grove City College, where he also coordinates the curriculum in the humanities. He's a fellow with the Center for Vision and Values. He's an award-winning professor, and he's written books including Faith in the Presidency from George Washington to George W. Bush and his latest book, Heaven in the American Imagination. Professor Smith, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you, Dr. Moeller. It's good to be on. Well, it's good to have the conversation. And uh, when you consider all the books out there that have most recently been written about heaven, I think it's fair to say that nothing's uh, been written that, uh, well, at least until your book, that I would think might be published by Oxford University Press. But out there in the popular world, uh, there are so many books right now that seem to be fascinated with the topic of heaven. I know how those books originated. Tell us how your book originated. I was looking for a subject that I thought would be of interest to a broad audience. And I noted that the only book I could find on the subject was a 1988 book called Heaven, a History, which surveyed views of heaven from antiquity to the present and had a couple chapters on what Americans thought about heaven. So very little work had been done on the subject, and it seemed to me one a subject that would have a great deal of, of interest, and it was one as a historian of American religious history that I was very interested in. So the field was white under harvest, and I decided that I would uh, begin an investigation of it, and I'm, I'm certainly glad that I did because it was a fascinating study. Well, I can only imagine that it would be. Uh, the topic of heaven, along with the topic of hell, have been a rather perpetual human fascination in one way or another. Certainly in terms of Western civilization, it's hard to imagine the worldview held by most Westerners in the regions that had once been identified as Christendom without an almost reflexive uh, reference to heaven uh, as well as to hell. But I am struck by the fact, and your book makes this very clear, that by the time you come to heaven in terms of our contemporary culture, you're really talking about something that has continuities with uh, heaven as it's been understood and imagined by people through the centuries, but also some discontinuities. And I do have to put this over against the background of the fact that there is so much popular fascination with heaven right now in terms of these books about near-death experiences and all the rest. But you've really taken a deeper look at, at how heaven has been understood throughout the history of the American experience. Well, I certainly have. I, I begin with the Puritans and I end with the, the present day and survey all the time periods and, and groups in between. I, I certainly do focus more on Protestants, especially evangelical Protestants, than other groups, but I pay some attention to Catholics and Jews, and certainly in more recent times to New Age perspectives and the near-death experience craze that began in the 1970s, and as you indicate, is very popular today. So I, I try to look at a broad spectrum of, of groups over time, and as you indicate, I did find a lot of continuities, but I, I found a lot of changes in response to different cultural trends and, and uh, perspectives that, that existed at different time periods. 
Now, speaking of evangelical Protestants and the American experience, you argue two things that I think are very crucial. And the first is that the expectations about heaven itself, uh, the, the, the imaginations of what heaven would be like, those things have shifted significantly, whereas the more theological and biblical question about how it is one gets to heaven, you suggest at least among evangelical Protestants, has held fairly constant, and that is through, through the knowledge and confession of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But when you go back, for instance, to the Great Awakening, as you do in your book, that, that very seminal and formative period for the Protestant experience in America— you point out that the evangelists of the Great Awakenings more often used hell in reference to their preaching rather than heaven. Yes, there was uh, much more, I think, of a cultural acceptance to talk about hell, uh, much less of the trends towards universalism that exist today or some type of post-mortem opportunities for salvation. And of course, in that day and age, without the creature comforts that we enjoy today, uh, I think people were more attuned to the subject of, of suffering and uh, the more physical imagery of hell and what that might uh, involve. So yes, certainly the first and second Great Awakening, 1730s, 1740s, and then into the first four decades of the 1800s, uh, did the evangelists uh, did put quite a bit of emphasis on hell, but they also did paint very alluring pictures of heaven too. So it was kind of a the carrot and the stick approach, I would say. One historian of Christianity in the medieval era points out that very high rates of the uh, the death of infants and children led Christian parents to think a great deal about heaven simply because of the, the lives that had been so short in, in terms of this earthly experience. And there was, at least during, you would say, most of the centuries of the Christian experience, a tremendous sense of almost necessary longing for heaven simply because the lot of the average Christian was not to experience many of the joys and, and many of the pleasures that, uh, that they knew existed in the world. They lived hard lives of hard labor. They had hard experiences. And even in the midst of, of the joys of being a follower of Jesus Christ, they experienced tremendous pains. They could not fool themselves by the kind of creature comforts that you talk about. They, they could not occupy themselves a lot of the of the things that we fill our lives with, and so they almost necessarily yearned for heaven. Well, that's absolutely true, and I point out in the book that the whole concept of heaven as a place of rest and relaxation from the arduous nature of life was a major theme up through the latter part of the 1800s, um, but it hasn't been much of a theme more recently when a lot of people enjoy at least in the West, a great deal more leisure time and opportunities for travel and vacationing, things like that, that there's been a shift more toward such things as what type of service will I render when I'm in heaven? What kind of opportunities will I have for personal growth? What kind of therapeutic experiences will I have? What kind of relief will I have from my earthly anxieties in the kind of conflicted and troubled world in which we live? So certainly from that perspective, and, and the broader theme, I think, has been a shift from a more theocentric focus on worshiping of God in heaven that dominated from the Puritans up through the, the Second Great Awakening to a more of a focus on fellowship with other people and almost uh, an anthropocentric heaven that focuses on more human relationships, fellowship, heavenly reward, recognition of other people that has been more dominant since, say, the middle of the 19th century. For the last several decades, at least, uh, some theologians have been talking about a, a problem that uh, that they perceive, and I think rightly perceive, and that is what is called the domestication of transcendence, which, uh, to put in different terms, means basically uh, trying to take 
the, a theistic worldview and, and reduce it to the kind of, of anthropocentric, therapeutic worldview that, uh, that quite frankly, is so much a part of the, of the age that uh, even many American evangelicals simply don't know how to distinguish that from the worldview of the Bible. In your book, you point out, and you trace this through uh, others who've also considered the question of heaven, the fact that it was during the Victorian age, and in particular through the, the key decades of the 19th century, that this shift happened between a theocentric understanding of heaven and a more anthropocentric understanding of heaven. Why was that characteristic of the Victorian age? Well, because the Victorian age was an age when the home was highly exalted. Uh, This was a period of time when the focus of people, particularly women, was on what was called the cult of domesticity, the idea that the primary role that women had was as wives and homemakers, and in the absence of the kinds of modern entertainments that we have, there was a great deal of emphasis on developing the family, spending time together as a family, fellowship with friends. So that was picked up by a lot of the folks who wrote about heaven, both in England and the United States, and some of the books from England came across and were widely available here. So it fit very well, I think, with uh, the cultural milieu, the cultural setting. And then, of course, in the middle of that time, we had the Civil War. And the Civil War was a huge uh, tragedy with a 620,000 death count. Uh, and so almost every family in, a, in the America was affected in some way by the Civil War. And so the theme of reunion with the people who have in your family, particularly the young men who have died in the war, uh, was obviously very much on people's minds. And as I point out in the book, too, uh, revivals were very common during the Civil War. There were hundreds of thousands of people converted because of their concern about eternal destiny, but also because the the, the churches and uh, various religious organizations were doing such a great job and through chaplains and tracts and other means of getting the message out there and holding revival services and encouraging uh, soldiers to uh, repent and, and be right with Christ before they went out to fight these important battles. Now, as you trace the history of heaven back even beyond in history, the American experience, uh, for instance, you cite Peter Kreeft, who uh, has written that the medieval imagery of heaven featuring light, jewels, stars, candles, trumpets, and angels has been replaced with, and to quote Kreeft, uh, pathetic modern substitutes of fluffy clouds, sexless cherubs, harps, and mental halos, metal halos, presided over by a stuffy divine chairman of the board, B-O-R-E-D, end quote. Now, how did this happen? I mean, that is very, very interesting. Uh, Christians throughout most of Christian history, insofar as they thought of heaven, thought of it as a, as, a, as a place of greater intensity than what we experienced here on earth, whereas it seems that even many contemporary Christians, just, just in terms of their own imagination of heaven, think of heaven as a place of far less intensity than what we experience here on earth. The basic thesis of the book is, is that there's a strong correlation between what's going on in any particular time period and how heaven is being envisioned. Obviously, the people who are writing about heaven are trying to interpret the same scriptures, and there are a fairly limited number of those scriptures, and the kinds of themes that are evident in those scriptures are, in many cases, figurative and symbolic, so it gives a great opportunity for interpretation. And so I think that people are influenced by their cultural setting and by the kinds of worldviews that they've embraced and by the way that they've experienced life on earth to to paint heaven in ways that are rather similar with what they're experiencing. And so I think that shift that you described in those in that quotation 
is is commensurate with, it's consistent with the kinds of shifts that have occurred in our culture, broadly speaking. I mean, obviously, we have people who've continued to hold on to the kinds of theological positions that the Puritans held, and we have people who've embraced much more uh, eclectic positions, and of course we have wide number, large numbers of people who've embraced more uh, theologically liberal perspectives within within Protestantism. So I, I think it's just truly a reflection of the kinds of of messages that we get in our culture. And I've, I also stress that particularly in the last 30 or 40 years, many people have drawn their perspectives on heaven from media not necessarily from sermons or from books written by Christians. So they've been very influenced by television shows and by movies and by popular novels. And of course, they have featured these kinds of themes that you just described. Now, let's talk about that for just a moment, because I, I think popular culture is always a, a, a more influential factor in terms of the Christian imagination than we would often like to think. But if we just look out at the secular world and listen to that conversation— Concerning heaven, what do you pick up there as the dominant kind of motif or concern that is out there in what we might call a more popular or secular understanding of heaven? Well, I think the basic message there pertains more to the fact that rather than what it'll be like, more that everyone's going to eventually get there. Or the the question of how do you get there is based on what kind of life you've led and as long as you've led a generally good life and tried to be an upstanding moral person, that you will be you will be acceptable in the realm to come, whatever that realm intain, uh, contains, that uh, it would be very unjust for people to not get there simply because they didn't believe the right things when there are so many different opportunities for belief, so many different worldviews that are out there in our day and age, and supposedly the absence of proof that that there is for a Christian perspective. So I think that's a major theme. Of course, a significant number of seculars deny that there is any uh, heaven at all and would say that we are going to live on only through our progeny or through our contributions or through the ways we try to make earth a better place. And certainly that's been a theme back to the, the social gospel era that even if there is a heaven, our focus ought to be on trying to reconstruct earth and bring justice to earth and make earth the best possible place. And of course, for secularists, they would argue that's the only life we know we're going to have for sure, so let's make it as good as possible here and now. And if we happen to have a life after death, then then that's an extra added bonus. Every time I read a book, I'm looking for something that uh, that really helps me to think through um uh, the the reality in a way that I, I might not have seen it before. I've done a great deal of writing and publishing and speaking uh, as a theologian on the transitions and the understanding of hell that took place uh, certainly over the last two to three hundred years. And interestingly enough, uh, the, the big change that came in terms of the uh, the theological arguments concerning hell also emerged in the Victorian era, and uh, for reasons that are also well understood. That's also when you had the Victorians begin to redefine the criminal code, uh, certainly in Great Britain first and then the United States. Uh, that's when the notion of the penitentiary emerged rather than the prison or the jail. And, and so there were clear cultural references that had uh, determinative theological effects in terms of the, the questions many people were asking. And when I read your book, it was also, I must say, that same era that struck me more than anything else, that great transition between a theocentric understanding of heaven that was true during the, you might say, the revolutionary and colonial and early republic era, uh, then contrasted with where we end up in the 20th century with the kind of anthropocentric concerns. Now, I want to turn to you as author, because every author doing a book of this magnitude 
uh, finds uh, and encounters certain surprises. W- what surprised you the most in writing this book? I was I was struck by both the continuities that existed from the Puritans to the present, and there were quite a few of those, uh, as you noted, particularly in the idea of how you get to heaven. Uh, there seems to be a pretty strong continuity from the Puritans to contemporary evangelicals, and I think that there's been a pretty strong stress throughout the 400-year history that I to describe in the fact that you have to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, uh, that it is by grace through faith, and that it is not a matter of the works that we do. Although I was also struck by the fact that from the Puritans to the present, there's been a pretty strong emphasis on the works are still important. Their response to the faith uh, that that you have, their response to the gift of salvation that God gives you. I I guess I was also struck by the fact that different themes, though, emerged as more important in different times. In some periods of time, there was much more focus on fellowship with with other saints or fellowship with the heroes of the Bible or fellowships fellowship with the great figures of church history than other times. In some periods of time, there's much more emphasis on what the rewards of heaven are going to be like or whether those rewards are going to just be laid at Christ's feet or whether you're actually going to enjoy them in heaven. Uh, I think that there was uh, a lot of emphasis on changing emphasis on what kinds of activities people are going to engage in uh, over time, with more, as I said, emphasis on opportunities for service and growth. So I I was certainly struck by by those kinds of things. And I guess I wasn't surprised to see that views of heaven just became more eclectic over time, that there were more competing images of what heaven would be like as different groups emerged. I didn't mention earlier Mormons, but certainly they've offered a distinctive view of heaven. Uh, So it's been more of an intellectual smorgasbord that has developed over time. I guess one of the unresolved questions has been, how are people going to be happy in heaven if they have a knowledge that some people they love aren't there? And interestingly, I really haven't seen any group that's provided a, a really compelling answer to that question, except that if... If God loves people and and he's uh, okay with them not being there, that, that we will be able to be so as well. It is important that we have a conversation like this so that we can determine for ourselves how much of our own understanding of heaven is actually drawn from the Bible and how much of it's drawn from the culture around us. When Professor Smith writes about heaven and the American imagination, one thing becomes clear. Americans have had a very vivid, if oftentimes unbiblical, imagination. James Reston once commented, The White House is the pulpit of the nation, and the president is its chaplain. The issue of faith in the American presidency has been a concern all the way back to George Washington, our first president, and is as relevant as controversies that are now surrounding even the 2012 presidential campaign. Professor Gary Scott Smith has not only written on heaven, he's also the author of the book Faith and the Presidency, a massive work published by Oxford University Press, and he has done remarkable work in investigating the way that faith actually operates within the American presidency, and in particular, 11 presidents in this volume, beginning with George Washington and ending with George W. Bush. Professor Smith, when you consider faith in the presidency, how central a question is this, you think, uh, to the American concern about uh, our chief executive? 
I think it's a very, very important question from the perspective that poll after poll indicates that a high percentage of Americans care uh, about how that, that their president has a fairly strong religious faith in that he attends church and particularly prays and believes in God and seeks God's wisdom in the decisions that uh, that he makes. So from that perspective, and, and the poll after poll says that a high percentage of Americans as high as 40 percent wouldn't vote for an atheist for president, I think that uh, the faith of presidents is, is very, very significant in American history. And again, it's been a subject that's been very understudied until about the last uh, decade. The issue of faith in the American presidency is not a concern only to historians and academics, but it's as central to the headlines uh, that will be appearing in terms of this very presidential election coming up in 2012. Americans, not only at the academic level, but very much at the level of popular discourse and political concern, think that the faith of their president is a matter of great importance. Professor Smith, as you trace the trajectory of these issues from George Washington to George W. Bush, what are the continuities and what are the contrasts that you trace? One of the main continuities is that people have cared about the religious convictions of their presidents, and they and, and presidents have typically, while in office, said that they have become deeper in their faith. And a lot of presidents have tried to set a good example by going to church regularly. Uh, George Washington being a leading example, he went pretty much every Sunday while president, but not nearly as much uh, prior to his presidency. Of course, fighting a war definitely had a role to play there for a while. And of course, we've had Eisenhower would be a second example of that, of of someone who didn't actually even join a church until shortly uh, after he became president, but then made it a point to try to get to church every Sunday, regardless of where he was and what his schedule was. Uh, So that that has been certainly a, a major issue. And then seeking out uh, people who could provide religious advice and counsel, I think, has been a major uh, factor among presidents throughout history. Obviously, from Truman on, particularly from Eisenhower on, it's been Billy Graham as the leading confidant, and that's shifted uh, recently. So that, that's been a major issue. I think that obviously different time periods – depending on the general level of religiosity of folk um, and what's going on in the culture has played a role. Uh, in my book, I try to look at you know re- elections where religion has played a major role. And 1800 with Jefferson and Adams and the accusations that Jefferson was uh, an atheist or a deist was big. Of course, 1928 uh, with uh, Hoover and Al Smith, the first uh, – major Catholic candidate was a, was a big election. Um, the election of 1960, obviously, uh, Reagan and Carter in 1980, uh, George W. Bush uh, and Al Gore in the year 2000. And as you've alluded to, I think uh, religion, depending on who the Republican nominee ends up being, but it's going to be a pretty big issue in the election of 2012. It's certainly been a big issue in the Republican primary contest already. Yeah, I think it's it's surely going to be so as we look to the future, if, if for no other reason than the fact that many of these candidates, especially on the Republican side, have clearly identified themselves with constituencies almost first and foremost, uh, given their, their Christian convictions and their identification with the evangelical culture. And, and even President Barack Obama, whose religion, quite, by the way, has been quite an issue of controversy, 
uh, he's he's felt the need to address that in a very clear way. Now, you wrote about President Obama and, and the question of his faith, and you, frankly, offered the president some advice. How did that come about? <laughs> before, uh, after his election and before he took office, he was uh, – churches were trying to recruit him to attend in the Washington, D.C. area. And, of course, he had broken off his relationship with Trinity Church in Chicago and Jeremiah Wright. And so there was a concern about, you know, where he would go and, and lots of people who uh, – congregations that, that wanted him to come despite the security issues when a president attends your church and despite the potential distractions. But uh, he really has gone to church very little except when he's been at Camp David, and no one seems to be able to give us an accurate account of uh, how often he's attended the Evergreen Chapel there at uh, Camp David. So he seems to be pretty uh, – he, he hasn't really followed through with that particular aspect. He basically has decided that he's not going to choose a church in Washington, and he's only gone to services a handful of times since he's become president. Now, you offered some some advice to him about the fact that uh, if he indeed wants to identify himself as a Christian – and, and this, again, in terms of the cultural context, which is clearly a political context – you suggested that he needs to speak more about his convictions than about, uh, for instance, just uh, labels of identification. Well, he certainly does, but uh, I would note that he has spoken a fair amount if you do some searches of the various speeches that he has given since president um, in the campaign all the way back to 2006 at the call to renewal. Uh, he shared his testimony with uh, quite a number of, of different groups. And in his presidency, he has, uh, at an, on a number of occasions, spoken about his faith. I don't think that he has directly connected his faith convictions with public policy to the extent that his campaign would lead us to think that he would do. And, and that would be my criticism. Uh, I think that he needs to make more of those kinds of identifications because we've still got this massive confusion out there in terms of, well, is he – a Muslim? Is he an advocate of black liberation theology? Is he a mainline Protestant? What exactly does he believe? Now, in your book, again, uh, in, in on the American presidency, faith and the presidency, you point out that of the 11 presidents you considered, some of them were quite overt in, in terms of the way they, they spoke of their faith. And in particular, you point to uh, Wilson, Carter, and Bush but you also say that the others, uh, and, and many of those had deeply held religious beliefs, were intensely private about their religious convictions. Is that something now we can look at and say that's more or less a matter of the past, that, that now this is so much of a frontline issue that we can count on it? Because I think that argument can be made. I, th- I think whether you're on the Democratic or the Republican side, looking at the present and at the future, it's hard to imagine a time when this would not be a question. Yes, it's going to be a question. Obviously, the Democrats looked at what happened with John Kerry's candidacy in 2004, and they said, well, we don't want to repeat that. We turned off a lot of of religiously committed folks because of Kerry's inability or unwillingness to talk about these issues. And so Obama and others said, helped by Jim Wallace and Sojourners, that uh, we really need to bring Democrats back into the conversation about faith. And so Really, the three leading Democratic candidates for 2008 all did that, Clinton and Edwards and Obama. And I think that you can continue to expect that to happen in the future because the, particularly the evangelical constituency is so large, but also you've got a number of other important religious constituencies to deal with. But I'm not sure it's going to happen in every case because 
John McCain, I think one of his his problems in 2008, besides the Bush legacy and the economy and all those other things, was that he didn't – and he, he ended up winning close to about the same percentage of the evangelical vote that uh, that Bush won in 2004, but it, they didn't turn out and vote in as high of numbers. So, so I, But he was very reticent to speak about his faith, and when he did, he when he told his testimony about what happened in the POW camp, he basically talked more about the faith of the guard than his own personal convictions. So I think there are still people who are temperamentally going to have trouble talking about these issues. Now, as you did this historical survey, let me ask you, what did you see as kind of the the dangers that uh, an evangelical Christian should be concerned about when, when you look at the issue of the faith of American presidents? What, what, what kinds of things should concern us and uh, and and where do you see kind of the boundary lines of the appropriate uh, display of presidential piety and the appropriate expectation of the electorate in, in terms of the, the convictions of a president? Well, that's a great question. I guess one of the biggest dangers would be you would expect the president to be more favorable towards your particular religious constituency and fail to recognize that he has to be the president of all all Americans and that all Americans represent a wide variety of religious perspectives and while his faith can inform his his work as president and his public policy making that he's going to have to be somewhat uh, guarded in his language because of the fact that he does represent the entire American uh, con- constituency and that he's going to turn off certain people if he uses certain kinds of language, and that's going to be counterproductive. I think that also you've got to be concerned that, and this, of course, Bush was accused of this on a number of occasions, that he was, you know, having these, um, and of course he did, he denied this, but that he was making decisions on the basis of uh, direct pipeline to God handwriting on the wall rather than inform policy decisions guided by his various uh, advisors. And, and I think that we've we've got to be concerned about single issue kinds of, of approaches. You know, we like particular candidates because of their stances on on single issues or a couple of different issues. I think we need to look more broadly at the stances that they take across a wide range of political issues. So, so I think all of the, all of those are dangers that uh, that we need to be careful with. And I think evangelicals have been rather disillusioned, in fact, going all the way back to Jimmy Carter, that that evangelical presidents are going to do more for them, that they're going to put more of their type of people into prominent positions within government. And that really didn't happen with – I mean, it happened more so, I think, with Bush than with, with Reagan or Carter. But I think you, you can set yourself up for uh, dissatisfaction and for being – um, disappointed with what the president does with, if you don't look at the full political spectrum and all the pressures upon him. As you look at the entire list of presidents of the United States, as of now, we have one Roman Catholic president, and the rest were all Protestants of one sort or another, either mainline Protestants or more evangelical Protestants. But now America's facing some very different kinds of questions. Let me ask you this. You have argued that it is very unlikely, and I think you're absolutely right about this, by the way, that it's very unlikely that we would have an atheist president of the United States. But we're now facing the reality, and uh, and quite frankly, a lot of people are beginning to have the conversation, is America ready for a Mormon president? How does that fit within your historical consideration? Well, we have, as you say, had nothing but Protestant presidents except for um, John F. Kennedy. But we have had at least three presidents who identified with Unitarianism, and we've had two presidents who've identified themselves as, as friends or Quakers, and certainly those two positions are 
not uh, mainstream American religion. So we, we've already had the experience of, of those kinds of, of positions, which theoretically at least could have been troublesome to certain large constituencies in American society. I think Mormonism raises more red flags than either Quakerism or Unitarian, uh, Unitarianism because of the perception, particularly among evangelicals, that it is uh, somewhat cult-like and it has more distinctive differences from mainstream evangelical or even mainline Protestantism than either being a friend or being a Unitarian is, although Unitarians certainly disagree on the big issues with uh, with Protestants and, and with, with many Catholics, obviously, all Catholics. I think that uh, Mormonism can be a problem and will probably decrease. Probably some people would not vote for Romney, although, again, it's, it comes down to who is the alternative. They, they might not vote at all, but again, I'm, I'm fond of saying if you would ask uh, evangelicals in 1980, would you vote for a candidate who is divorced and who was a Hollywood movie actor, if you just ask them that question in the abstract, most of them would have said no, but then they voted for Ronald Reagan in droves because they liked so many other things about him. A final question on this topic. As you consider the importance of the faith of American presidents to our own national self-understanding and as well as to our political uh, conversation and, uh, and, and frankly, the way we even envision the nation, let me ask you, to what extent is this peculiar to America? Uh, you could envision, as, as a matter of fact, you've referenced the fact that Australia has had an atheist prime minister. Uh, other nations have very different kinds of political cultures. W- what makes America, in this case, rather distinctive? Well, you're absolutely right to point out that America is distinctive. Uh, Europeans certainly uh, can't quite get their minds around why we are so concerned about the religious convictions of presidents and why we think that makes such a difference and why we would be so reluctant to vote for a secularist or an atheist, as Australia has done. I mean, obviously, we've had Christian leaders of other countries. Tony Blair stands out in Great Britain. But I think it's, I think it's, the, it's the political culture here. Um, the fact that we are much more of a, a nation that has a higher, much higher percentage of people who say they believe in God, believe in heaven, believe in hell, also uh, for whom faith is significant, uh, are members of churches, attend churches. Obviously, we'd like to see these, these things be much higher than they are. But And then people who go to church weekly or at least uh, bimonthly, uh, people who read the Bible regularly. So I think faith informs people's lives a lot more here in, in the United States than it does in other parts of the world. And then, of course, the other thing would be that we have had organizations that have been created, particularly back into the late 70s from an evangelical perspective, that have encouraged people to think about these issues from a distinctly uh, biblical basis, or at least within the context of, of religious faith. So that certainly played a role. And then we've had an extraordinary number of candidates who, for various reasons, have emphasized the nature of their faith uh, since Jimmy Carter in 1976, also Gerald Ford that year, to the present. So I think all those things have come together to uh, bring about this, this difference that you're describing. The books are Heaven in the American Imagination and Faith in the Presidency, from George Washington to George W. Bush. The author is Professor Gary Scott Smith of Grove City College. And Professor Smith, it's been an honor to have you with me today on Thinking in Public. Well, thank you, Dr. Moeller. It's been a privilege to be on your show.
talking about heaven to talking about faith in the American presidency. But both are very much a part of understanding America, American culture, and the American mind. Both are also important to understanding American history. That's why it's an historian who's written these two very important volumes. But of course, we can't ask questions that are limited to history. Some of our concerns are very much about the present. Recent polling and survey research has indicated that the vast majority of Americans who say they believe in God also say they believe in heaven. It's also clear that by a very similar plurality, the vast majority of Americans believe that they're also themselves going to heaven, and for reasons that turn out to be rather unbiblical in terms of their presumption. One thing's for certain, heaven has been very much a part of the American imagination, if not of the American experience. We understand heaven to be a necessary referent, not only to understanding where we are in space and time and history, but what we aspire to and what we think of, what we even fear about the future. Heaven and hell will have to be taken together. It seems to me that a great deal more historical and theological investigation of late has gone into the question of hell. And perhaps that's explainable by the fact that so many in the modern age have tried to redefine or to reject the biblical understanding of hell. It's also rooted, I think, in the fact that Jesus himself had far more to say about hell than about heaven, and the fact that the urgings and the warnings about hell are so urgent. What we saw over the last two or three hundred years is a significant number of liberal theologians and biblical scholars try to retreat from the Bible's very clear teachings about hell. There's been a reformulation of hell, so much so that one theologian pointed out there's been an effort to air condition hell. I've written a great deal about this myself in terms of published literature, and it's been a major concern because when we redefine hell, we are also redefining the gospel. But of course, that's true about heaven as well. And Christians should long for heaven, yearn for heaven, look forward to heaven. I think one of the most important gains of Gary Scott Smith's book, Heaven in the American Imagination, is pointing out just how much our American culture has, at various twists and turns, influenced our understanding of heaven. What exactly are we hoping for? Now, let's think of this in an evangelical conversation for a moment. Let's just remember that there is a larger conversation that includes Protestants and Catholics and Jews and Evangelicals and New Agers and Secularists, but let's leave that for a moment and just have a conversation amongst ourselves as Evangelical Christians. We should be the people who know to find our moorings and groundings and conceptualizations concerning heaven from the Scriptures. But reading this book, I think most of us would be rather humbled by the fact that a good many of our expectations and anticipations about heaven have actually come from the larger culture around us. Professor Smith makes a very good point of pointing out that there was this great transition in the understanding of heaven, a transition not so much in the secular understanding, but uh, quite honestly, even in the Protestant and evangelical understanding, from a theocentric understanding of heaven to an anthropocentric understanding. He pointed out the Victorian concern about the family is a very important part of this, and we can understand how that would happen. We want to see heaven as the continuation of the greatest joys that we see here on earth. And one of the greatest joys, of course, comes from the domestic sphere, from marriage and from family, from children and from the extended family. And so many people naturally gravitated towards an understanding of heaven that is domestic. It is a continuation of, of the great joy we have known in our own families as we get to heaven. But I think the historical investigation helps us to understand the loss in that. There is a very urgent concern for heaven in the Bible. And especially as we come to the end of the Bible, which points to the end of all things in the book of Revelation, where we are told that there is coming a new heaven and a new earth, a new holy city, a new Jerusalem. 
Jesus himself told his disciples before he left them that he was going to prepare a place for them. Now, as you look at the biblical understanding, it is clear, as at least some ages of Christianity have better understood than we, that this means that heaven is a place of greater joy, of greater pleasure, of greater employment, of greater identity, of greater intensity than what we know here on earth. There's a humbling realization that comes from reading Gary Scott Smith's book, Heaven in the American Imagination, and it comes down to this. Even as the secularists have domesticated transcendence, it's clear that in terms of popular evangelical piety, we're largely guilty of the same thing. If indeed what he traces in this book is the fact that there is kind of a natural inclination for us to make of the eschatological reality of heaven what we most enjoy and aspire and hope for here on earth, then it's clear that many American Christians have kind of a commodified understanding of heaven, a rather materialistic understanding of heaven in terms of streets of gold and all the rest and promises that those who did not have such things here on earth will have great material pleasures in heaven. Now, I'm certain that the pleasures in heaven are infinitely greater than the pleasures here on earth. I am absolutely confident that when Jesus said to his disciples that he went to prepare a place for them and he used the language of such a beautiful, magnificent, priceless place, he was telling us it is going to be infinitely better than what we know. But it is certainly the case that heaven is not just a place where the commodification is infinitely magnified. Rather, there is an even greater good than the material goods we know that is the Bible's first and foremost concern about heaven. There are other issues here, of course, and as Professor Smith makes clear, one of the continuities that is rather reassuring in terms of American evangelicals is the question of how persons get to heaven. And as you trace through the American evangelical experience, the reflexive answer that clearly is based upon biblical conviction is that one gets to heaven by personal faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But even as we are rather assured by the continuity, we need to be rather concerned by the data that's coming to us now indicating that large numbers of American evangelicals in the present hour are beginning to soften in terms of their conviction that they do know that the Bible says that Jesus is the only Savior. They're, they're beginning to try to renegotiate what Jesus said as he told his disciples, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Also, as you look younger in terms of the evangelical population, you see that the confidence in terms of the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ is being deteriorated before our eyes in the midst of a culture that is not only talking about heaven and hell and all kinds of aspirations and fears, but is also saying to young evangelicals, there is simply no way to say there's only one way of salvation. There is no way you can say that heaven is restricted to those who have personal knowledge and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, the question of heaven, like the question of hell, as we saw, turns out to be a gospel issue. And what we anticipate about heaven, what we believe about heaven, and what we tell others about heaven is going to tell us also what we believe about the gospel and how we communicate or do not communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a fascinating thing to turn the conversation from turning about heaven and the American imagination to talking about faith in the American presidency. But of course, they are very much related. It has to do with the fact that if you look at America as a culture and you listen to the conversation of the American society, it's almost impossible to talk about anything of importance without theistic reference, without reference to faith and religion and belief in God and all that these things entail. This is, as Professor Smith said, something that makes America distinctive. It's possible, indeed, it's, it's very likely that most European and, uh, and especially even British leaders would be very reticent to talk in this way. As former British Prime Minister Tony Blair's aide once said, we don't do God. Well, it's clear that American presidents have been doing God for a very long time. That is, 
being put in a context where their own faith is a matter of very public concern. If that was true for George Washington and even more true for George W. Bush, it's true for the incumbent president, Barack Obama, and it will be a key factor in the 2012 presidential race and, as so far as we can see, for races yet to come. I think it's very interesting that Professor Smith observes it is very unlikely that there will be an atheist president of the United States. It's because the American people, by conviction and by moral reflex, seem to understand that one's worldview is absolutely central to how one will govern. I think it also has a great deal to do with how Americans have the intuition to consider character. And as has become clear in terms of even recent conversations about uh, atheist public figures and at least one congressman who has said that he is indeed an atheist, this leads many people to the automatic question about character. Now, this is going to be a very interesting conversation in America for some time to come. Even as we are experiencing an increased secularization, certainly among the intellectual elites and the culture class, also on the college and university campus, it's going to become clear that there are going to be Americans who are going to come at this question with very divergent expectations. That's going to have political ramifications, of course. It's going to be fascinating to watch. Christians need to pay particular heed to this discussion because we need to have a very mature, responsible, honest conversation about exactly what we should and shall expect of presidential candidates and of those who hold office. How should we expect a candidate to tie his political convictions to his mode of public philosophy, her own religious faith to her own intentions and public policies once in office? These aren't questions that are going to be avoidable. Evangelicals have often been just listening with the ear to have the kind of reassurance that tells us that a candidate knows who we are and wants to identify with us. A candidate can get away with saying some things that are quite theologically superficial, and it seems that that assures a good many evangelicals that they know who he is or what she believes. In reality, as we start looking at these questions, in all likelihood, we're going to have to ask harder questions. We're going to face more complicated issues. But as we look at this now, it's clear we're going to have to ask some harder questions. We're going to face some more complicated issues. For instance, in the 2012 election, it's very likely that we might find ourselves asking the question, what about a Mormon candidate? How do American evangelicals think about this? On the one hand, how do we make very clear our theological convictions concerning Mormonism, convictions that require us to make clear that Mormonism is not another form of Christianity and that it indeed is a rival belief system to evangelical Christianity, and at the same time say, but we are electing a president and not a pastor? That's not an easy issue. It's not going to be easy for American evangelicals to think this through, but it's going to be our responsibility nonetheless. If not now, then very soon. That's why we need to be thinking, and that's why we need also to be thinking in public. Before signing off, I want to invite you to join us for an important conference taking place on the campus of Southern Seminary on November the 2nd. La Reform, celebrating the French Reformation on the quincentennial of Pierre Verret, 1511-1571. We'll provide an introduction to the French Reformation and include lectures on three important French reformers, Pierre Verret, John Calvin, and Theodore Beza. For more information, visit sbts.edu. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller. <laughs>